You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined by Ben Simon again. Uh, looking forward to our podcast wrap of the July Journal Club. How are you, Ben? Good, mate. Yeah, really good. Had a busy week, a busy month really, as usual. How about yourself? Uh, very good. I've been unwell, as you can possibly detect from the podcast voice, not being what I'd like. But I am on the recovery and I'm ready and raring to go with the Journal Club. So why don't you tell us about the main paper, what our discussants had to say, and what you think as the expert commentator for the month? Sure, absolutely. So look, we looked at three publications this month, but one in particular, and then I added two as extra reading if people would like to. So the first paper, the main paper, is called Exploring Group Boundaries and Conflicts, a Social Identity Theory Perspective. And it's by Bochate et al. and was published in 2019 in Medical Education. And then for people who kind of uh, dug that paper, we added two additional pieces of reading. reading. The first one being uh, an editorial uh, by Walter Epic and Jan Schmutz uh, in the same uh, edition of Medical Education entitled From Them to Us, Bridging Group Boundaries Through Team Inclusiveness. And then also a podcast, which we haven't done before, uh, but it was a, just a link to Revisionist History, which is a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell and specifically an episode called The Hug Heard Around the World. So if we just dig into the first paper, um, which is on group boundaries and conflicts, the paper really does two things. First, it provides uh, to a newbie like myself an overview of social identity theory, and then it presents a qualitative analysis of a series of interviews with healthcare staff about conflicts that they have in the workplace with a specific focus on how it all fits within a social identity lens. So what is social identity theory? Look, I think this stuff is pretty complex, but to me, social identity theory really makes the argument that how we see ourselves as an individual is strongly influenced by what social groups we think we belong to. So in other words, when we think of our identity, we often think of it as fixed and unchangeable. But in many ways, it's really fluid. Like, for example, for myself, throughout a day at work, I might see myself as a doctor in one moment, a fellow member of the emergency team, or as children's services as, an, as a whole. When I'm interacting with families, I might focus my identity or my connection with these people as a fellow parent. Um, and in every one of these interactions, how I present myself and how I see myself and how I see others changes based on what social group I see myself as part of. And then social identity goes even further than that, though, because it argues that when it comes to evaluating others, we prize value or we place value on those who come from within our own group, i.e. the in-group, and are much more mistrustful or judgmental of those in outer groups. So what's the whole point of that? Well, I guess in this paper, um, they take that theory and really look at how it impacts healthcare teams. So they analyze semi-structured interviews with 82 randomly selected physicians and nursing professionals who are working at a Swiss academic medical center, and they explored these participants' experiences of conflicts. Data analysis was then informed by that social identity theory and focused on interviews where the group processes were highlighted by the participants. And the analysis really sought to uncover how these group processes were intertwined with conflicts and how they affected the healthcare team. 
And look, to quote their results section, most of the stories were shared by physicians and involved groups of physicians at different hierarchical levels. And the conflicts in group processes were linked in two ways. One was that through processes of group membership, so when individuals struggled to join a relevant group um, or they were feeling like they weren't in the right position in the hierarchy within that group, and then there was intergroup boundaries, so that just when participants perceived that power differentials between groups disadvantage their own groups, so ED versus medicine, for example. The paper outlines that conflicts could lead to difficult experiences for clinicians who question their abilities, become disillusioned with their professional ideals, and develop negative perceptions of other groups. So do we do, what do we do about that? Well, that's the tricky bit. And I guess the paper suggests that when we explicitly value new group members and when we try and engage group members in active perspective taking um, of other team members and other people, then uh, we might try and solve this problem a little bit. But I think perhaps a slightly more comprehensive answer can actually be found in our additional reading. Did you have anything to add there, Vic, before I move on? Yeah, I think this social identity theory is something I had certainly looked at as well and was introduced to as a study subject uh, when I was interviewed in a study a little bit different to this but related to the management of upper GI bleeding at the Royal Brisbane. And it was really teasing out the differences in our group identities and how that affected the way different groups from ED, gastroenterology, uh, endoscopy suite and general physicians interacted around this patient. So I find it quite interesting. And how much belonging to a group can lead to quite destructive behavior towards the out groups and the sense of pride that people start to develop by being part of the in-group. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting about this is, you know, the trigger point or departure point for their interviews was about conflict. They started with think about conflict and then let's ask you about your identity. And I think that does skew a little bit what they found. I'm not sure that that would have been a consensus view of where to start with this question. So interesting. Mm, Interesting point. Where would you have started? Oh, I would have just been looking more at just talking about describing interactions and thinking about ones that uh, went well and some that didn't and perhaps having a slightly more balanced view. But, you know, maybe they got to where they wanted to and they were very interested in conflict. So it's not wrong. It's just that I think it's led to a certain outcome. Yeah, that's fair enough. So they went straight for the drama. Straight for the drama. (laughs) Cool. So, look, um, one thing I really liked about uh, the way medical education as a journal handled this was that they then included Walter and Jan's editorial. So, that was entitled From Them to Us, Bridging Group Boundaries Through Team Inclusiveness. And in this editorial, which I won't go into in super detail, but Walter and Jan provide more specific strategies in breaking down silos and sort of working together in general in healthcare. Uh, They again talk about active perspective taking, which I think is important to highlight, particularly as a skill that we can maybe utilize better in debriefing. Um, They also specifically talk about... um, the use of language in team leading um, by utilizing inclusive leadership and inclusive language strategies. So things like deliberately inviting other team members to contribute, uh, deliberately thanking and being mindful and listening to what those other team members are actually suggesting, for example, um, which is subtle, but I think really important. Um, they talk about facilitating team reflection, where again, I think uh, we as simulation educators have a strong role. Um, and also about just increasing contact between intergroup members. 
And all of those things make sense, but it's certainly very helpful to have them laid out clearly and very well explained. Um, and then lastly, after that, I included this link to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. And um, talking to a few people, I think they were a little bit mystified as to why I added that one. But um, to me, look, it looks at the life of Sammy Davis Jr., who was an immensely talented black and American entertainer. And through his story and the anecdotes of a number of other people, uh, Malcolm Gladwell kind of argues that the members of outgroups sometimes have to obtain membership of the in-group by turning against their own or rejecting their values or denigrating the very group that they're currently a member of. Um, it's a really powerful podcast, and I think to me it just fundamentally highlighted how deep the drive to belong really is, and I think that was the theme that echoed through all three of those papers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to extend all of that to thinking about its role in simulation, possibly one of the reasons why we get frustrated with behaviours in sim not necessarily translating into clinical practice, it's because all these things fundamentally underlie what behaviours people engage in in the real world. And that includes not just the people who are participants, but also the debriefers and thinking about our positioning as in or out group members with that uh group who we're engaged in a simulation with, I think is really important uh, as we think about then what we actually say. You're listening to Simulcast. When it came to the group discussion this month, it was a pretty quiet month um, and the comments primarily really voiced appreciation for the theme of the paper and how it introduced this theory to a lot of people. Uh, but there was a frequent wish for a lot of more depth regarding actionable advice uh, for dealing with intra and inter-team conflicts. But, you know, people did appreciate that really naming these behaviours helps us to understand them. So uh, Susan Ella began the conversation by describing how the article was useful in giving a terminology to the in-group, out-group behaviours that I have observed in healthcare. And this was echoed by Noel Roberts, who described, as an anaesthetist working in the OR, I realised I live this reality every day from my days as a trainee to a senior consultant. The paper revealed common experiences that unfortunately resonate with us all in the health professions. They assert that conflict involving group processes led to decreased confidence, disillusionment, and increased negative perceptions of outgroups. And certainly this rings true, uh, and I've witnessed all of these. Um, repeatedly people, you know, wanted some actionable advice. So uh, Sue Vigens described, we were left pondering what additional education strategies could be employed other than those offered of inclusive leadership and teamwork. Any thoughts from you, Vic? You've actually labelled it a problem, but I think it's also worth recognising that this social identity theory can be very positive and functional and help people get through a day and help groups perform well. So I think it's trickier even than that because it's certainly not like we want to remove people's sense of pride in belonging to a group because there is a lot good about that. It's just, um, as you say, when it triggers the conflict that we need to think about what strategies can we use and what can we fall back on in terms of sharing our social identities a little more than retreating back into them, as it were. Yeah, tricky, right? It's a double-edged sword and it just feels very deeply programmed to me and I think that's a really important point that you highlight. When I was on my psychiatry term, we had a lovely presentation from an adolescent psychiatrist who essentially takes you through this talk of how would you, how would you design a mammal or how, how would you design sort of a herd-based mammal? 
And <laughs> and in it, you know, he, he highlights all of these drivers that we need to be a successful species and proposes a solution. So things like loneliness are really important survival traits for us as a species, but um, they can lead us into trouble. So complex, fascinating stuff. I like this stuff. I know you do. I'm actually still surprised you're still in the ED and you're not off being a adolescent psychiatrist. <laughs> Sometimes the same thing, to be fair. I guess so. And that's just with the staff. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Simulcast. So, Ben, you um, actually went along and the Marta Curry Club had a discussion about this. How was that? A group of educators have started doing a monthly journal club. And so, one night after work a month, they go along, bring the Simulcast Journal Club paper along and have a good discussion over some curry and some naan. I'm wondering if we just skip to a quick quote from them now. All right. Let's hear from them. It dawned on me that there was a link really between this paper and the idea of using social identity theory and how beneficial that could be or harmful that could be and with your last journal club around cultural compression and that really we could use simulation as a vehicle to enhance or potentially if we're not doing it well um, worsen um, uh, group processes in the way that they influence um, conflict I suppose or or can enhance patient care so that was the main take home for me really made me think about this idea of belonging to groups and what we can do to make people feel like they belong or don't belong. And that's also a nice little prompt if anyone else out there listening is uh, doing some simulcast-inspired journal clubs around simulation. If you want to send us any little audio snippets of your thoughts, we'd be happy to hear them. You're listening to Simulcast. So, look, I did something a bit weird this month and uh, I wanted to be the expert. So, <laughs> so I'm the boss, so I got to do that. Um, and yeah, hooray. So look, I guess for me, the reason I wanted to be the expert is that for me, this paper really hits at that powerful underlying truth that belonging and isolation for me are the twin forces that drive much of our behavior. And our thirst for acceptance and our nagging fear of losing it motivates us all in really powerful but often unconscious ways. And to me, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, for example, is, is a case study of someone searching for belonging who makes really personal sacrifices in order to avoid profound rejection. And I included that podcast really to ask us as uh, journal clubbers, you know, what sacrifices do we make in debriefing or in our clinical work uh, to patient care in order to belong? And in our journal club comments this month, yep, definitely there was fair critique uh, on the contrast between the depth of the analysis of the problem and the superficiality of the solutions proposed. Um, And I agree with that, but I actually don't think it detracts from the value of the article for me as much because I think if we're going to address this as an issue, then we really need to understand it in a lot of depth. And sometimes complex problems really don't often get fixed with simple recipes. And I think this is one of those situations. Um, I really applaud medical education for starting the next part of that conversation by including the editorial from Jan and Walter. And I think that they really highlight that in our constant quest for human connection, it's often the spoken word that connects or divides us. 
So when we witness these behaviors in good resuscitations, I often think that people can really think this is this magical X factor that that a, a strong resuscitationist with good team binding skills uh, seems like this is just all this mercurial workings of a master communicator that's more art than science. But I think that they highlight that if you can name this stuff, if you can break it down into individual points and learn from them and replicate them, then you can take those principles and make them your own. And the other thing I think that's important is that simulation really has another role to play in, in trying to improve these hospital cultures because we essentially have tried to take a place at the sort of cultural campfire as storytellers and teachers. Um, and I think that we really need to sit back and think very deeply about how the productions that we put on transmit, transmit those cultural values that um, in a way that maybe we can try and change the stories that we have so that they mark the tribal borders of our collective consciousness a little differently. Um, just like you and Eve brought out so beautifully in the papers we discussed last month, Sim has a real role in cultural transmission. Um, and so I think we have the power but also the responsibility to address that challenge. Um so I, I think there's a lot to think about here. I think that the problems are really complex, that they're really genetically deeply, deeply ingrained. Um, and I agree that they're there for a reason as well and important to our survival. But um, I think that we really need to work very consciously and specifically at reviewing the way we tell stories in simulation, at reviewing the way we debrief in simulation and making sure uh, that we're transmitting a respectful um, and collaborative vision. Yeah, I agree. I mm -hmm. think this is a uh, be careful what you get into. Don't just debrief around behaviours because there's stuff underneath it. Uh, don't just admonish people to change their behaviour without a bit of exploration of what's underneath it. And then, as you say, be aware of some unintended messages you might be sending. So thank you, Ben. A deep mm. dive indeed. Yeah, good fun. All right. Well, we've got three other papers to have a briefer chat about, and these are all themed around the idea around non-technical skills, uh, which you might know we've already discussed on Simulcast with Paul Murphy uh, in his Advances in Simulation editorial about words matter. And in that podcast, we kind of didn't like the idea about talking about non-technical skills, but these three papers all talk about them. So the first of those is one called Medical Students' Non-Technical Skills, in brackets, Medi-Stunts, Preliminary Work Developing a Behavioural Marker System for the Non-Technical Skills of Medical Students in Acute Care. And this is by Hamilton and colleagues uh, in BMJ Stell in, uh, just recently in this year. And I'm going to go through this paper fairly briefly, but... Uh, they essentially are looking at ways that we can truly assess medical students' non-technical skills. And they open with the idea that non-technical skills are important uh, without really defining them that carefully and pointing out that when bad things happen in healthcare, we can point to a so-called failure of non-technical skills. And they then introduce this idea of a behavioural marker system, which for those who um, haven't heard much about that, which is most of us, this is the idea of having a validated score or scale uh, with a series of 
um, skill categories and observable behaviors that someone watching a person uh, performing can decide how good, in this case, their non-technical skills are. So examples of this are the anaesthetist non-technical skills or ANTS. There's also one in the UK called NOTS, N-O-T-S, non-technical skills of surgeons. And um, they sort of make the case that these behavioural marker systems are specific to context, level and experience. Obviously, situational awareness means something different if you're a consultant anaesthetist compared to if you're a medical student. Uh, Of interest, this is also the basis on which they developed the DASH, uh, the debriefing um, assessment tool that some people might be aware of. It's another example of a behavioural marker system. So what did they decide to do? Uh, They wanted to firstly identify non-technical skills relevant to med students and second, develop one of these behavioural marker systems, they said, to help feedback. So before I say what they did, Ben, how does the idea of the why grab you? A couple of things that worry me were actually the fact that they kept saying we need to incorporate all this stuff into medical curriculums. And secondly, I guess I was a little confused about the idea of sourcing the desired values or behaviours from the med students themselves. Well, that's a nice segue into what they did. So how did they actually try and achieve their aims? The medical students they studied did a series of simulation scenarios and then after that the students were interviewed and they were asked about their recognition and knowledge of non-technical skills in SIM and elsewhere. And the results of those interviews were coded and then they essentially had a panel of subject matter experts who took that and then developed the behavioural marker system. And without going into too much of their detail, this is essentially a bit of an iterative process where they sort of trial and error, you know, what's going to be a good category, what's a good observed behaviour. And it's probably easiest to tell you what they ended up with to give you some idea of what they were trying to do. But as an example, they start with what they call categories and the four that they came up with were situation awareness, decision-making and prioritisation, teamwork and communication and self-awareness. So these are the sort of broad categories. And then each of those in their final outcome were broken down into three, two or three skill elements. So for instance, in teamwork and communication, the first is establishing a shared mental model. The next one is demonstrating active followership. And then finally, they have a little list again of two or three positive and negative behaviours that sort of help us to have what you might, some people might call a rubric. So, for example, in establishing a shared mental model, they might have a behaviour that is checks understanding of team members and invites questions. And then all of that ends up essentially with a form where you score one to five against each of these um, skill elements and categories. So uh, it's quite a it's reducing quite complex things to a quantitative number, but they said that was so that that could then provide some structure to the feedback that they were given. So I'm with you, Ben. It's sort of tricky, um, but I don't think it was just med students. I think it was med student views then filtered through subject matter experts. To my mind, it's quite a complex method, but in the end, I suppose it makes a bit of face value what they've come up with. I do, while they have some cynicism, I guess I I do appreciate that asking this question of how do we define quality in non-technical skills and how can we then break down what is good and what is bad is is a fundamentally important question. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think what they did, they did very well. And and I quite like what they came up with, with their categories and their desired behaviours. They all made plenty of intuitive sense for me. And in many ways, I think you look at that list and as a debriefer, it gives you material that you might use or for someone providing feedback to people about what uh, Paul Murphy would rather call behavioural skills. Um, it gives you, I think, some material to work with. I wonder if the idea is to guide feedback. Why do we need all those numbers? Why aren't we just providing sort of narrative elements against these skill categories if it's not really for summative assessment? I'm not sure why we need the numbers, but that's very much a uh, element of behavioral marker systems. So it may just be illustrative that I don't quite understand what I'm talking about, but I couldn't see myself using the form. I could see myself using the content, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess this, you know, We've discussed it in a few different formats now, The is sort of having this focus on scoring and being able to compare people as opposed to understanding the underlying principles. I don't know whether that's always helpful. You're listening to Simulcast. That was quite a tricky paper to um, look at through the methods, but our next one really uh, takes another look at non-technical skills, and this is an editorial by Johnson uh, and Agarwal, and this is uh, in BMJ uh, Quality and Safety in Healthcare, again from May 2019. And the title of this editorial is Assessment of Non-Technical Skills, Why Aren't We There Yet?, Uh, which I think sort of feeds nicely into the discussion we've already started. Once again, they sort of come with the idea that non-technical skills are important, Um, particularly in our complex and team-based care. And really their their question is how do we align our educational systems to match the shift that we've taken from individual competencies towards teams and collective ones? And so, and they did a, they've got some literature they quote about yet again, when things go wrong, we find that there's an absence of some of these non-technical skills. And the editorial is sort of an overview of two papers that were published in the same edition of that journal, which were both systematic reviews. The first was a systematic review of teamwork assessment tools, which uh, looked at 13 different tools. And the second uh, is a systematic review of non-technical skill assessments in SIM and the real world, where they discovered 76 different tools. So I'm not sure how Medistunts is going to stack up against the other 76. So they say the gap here is there's no standardized definition of non-technical skills. Measuring is hard. We've always got trade-offs between validity, reliability, and feasibility. And finally, that there's actually no benchmark for adequate performance. So I think they sort of captured the issues pretty nicely, Ben. Um, What did you think? I thought there were a couple of really ripper quotes in there about some of the challenges in defining this stuff. Uh, with my favorite being uh, generalizing a tool beyond the context in which it is developed combined with Goodhart's law where when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure, leaves policy changes based on any of the existing measurement tools open to potentially damaging unintended consequences. And it felt like this was written by someone who really understood the nuance of the problem extremely well to me, and I really liked how they break broke that part of it down. Yeah, I think that's true and we've all seen that in action in our sort of clinical world as well. Yeah, hit home. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, in the editorial, at least, they uh, take a stab at what they think should be the next steps. And the first of those is they think if we had a lot more information on which to build these frameworks would be useful and they particularly cite examples like the black box OR at St Michael's in Toronto where if we had heaps and heaps of data about what kind of so-called non-technical skills are being uh, performed then that would help us and then they do advocate to actually um, agree upon a set of domains and I think wow I don't know how you go from 76 tools to uh, one set of domains, and maybe that's not exactly what they meant, but um, I think their call is to have more of the same, albeit with the difficulties we've got. And then I think in a, um important statement, they say then we've got to link incentives to performance, including things like licensing. So not until we've actually got some good markers can then we start to say to people you're good and you're doing this or you're not and by the way we're going to actually reward those behaviors so I feel like what they describe is a long way from where we are now and there may have a lot of unintended consequences in getting there so uh, I think we're still a long way to go Ben. Yeah I think in both those papers there's that strong behaviorist kind of viewpoint isn't there if we can work out what is good then we can squeeze you into that box by rating you poorly until you fit that mold um and that's overstating it and and um a bit reductionist but it was just a theme that sort of stuck with me in reading those two it's not quite like um you peck and you get a little grain you're the extreme behaviorist of uh chickens getting a (laughs) yeah (laughs) well that's the risk isn't it I guess yeah, yeah, risk, it is. You know, I guess every yeah. everything can Skinner be boxes. everything yeah. can be taken to the extreme or or not. But I guess that that's the the doomsday scenario that has me worried. You're listening to Simulcast. So the last paper, uh, a more perhaps um, practical application of this for the uh, everyday simulator. Uh, blindfolded trauma team resuscitation, a strategy for improved leadership and communication. This is an in-practice report in BMJ Stell by Hughes and Ahmed uh, from Florida. And um, some people may have done this. We certainly do in our uh, emergency department sims every now and again. We run the blindfolded team leader running the cardiac arrest scenario as a way of thinking about training in um, information gathering and closed loop communication and a variety of things that just helps people think about how do you uh, actually gather that information if you've got one of your sensors removed. And uh, this group said, well, if it works for ACLS, maybe it will also work for our trauma simulations. And as they describe what their problem was, it was kind of interesting to see. They kind of felt like the emergency medicine residents that they were training weren't following the strict ATLS protocols and they thought that one of the problems with this was it wasn't systematic and that they didn't use closed-loop communication. And uh, they also felt like in their real world they had somewhat chaotic resuscitation, so they felt it wasn't just a SIM problem, this really was a problem in um, their trauma management. So, again, we can see that there's probably multiple influences on this, but they thought this was one way of approaching it. So describe what they actually did. It was, you know, they had a what I think was a uni professional simulation. I think it was just the emergency medicine interns who had to deal with a trauma case 
And I'm going to quote from the paper, the residents at the bedside were not permitted to do anything without an explicit order given by the blindfolded team leader who was over in the corner of the room facing away, who had to then give out loud, clear instructions. And the only thing the rest of the team would do is do what was asked and then read back to the person, yes, thanks very much, I've done it. And uh, and again, I'll quote, this requires the team leader to practice perfect closed-loop communication. And they thought this was uh, reasonably good. And in their simulations, they felt like this did change the behavior to something more orderly. And certainly this were a lot more closed-loop communication. Uh, I think this is good, but I would do it carefully. But before I get into that, Ben, thoughts? Want to put a blindfold on and lead a trauma? Uh, in the sim room, absolutely. And I, I, um, I really like the blindfold technique as a circuit breaker if the focus of my teaching session is specifically on closed-loop communication or on, um, I guess, team communication in different ways, particularly with a focus on verbal communication. Um, so I, I like the technique. Um, I agree it has to be used carefully and... Um, to me, this was almost less of a simulation and more of a drill, and I think it can be a very effective drill. It was interesting that one of the justifications for the exercise, or at least for the paper, was to say that repeat traditional trauma simulations with immediate debriefings resulted in only minimal improvement in behavior in the clinical environment, despite improved behavior witnessed in the simulation lab. Um, but I couldn't, and correct me if I've read too superficially, but I couldn't find that then being addressed afterwards in that the outcomes still seem to be this worked in the simulation lab. So I, I felt like they didn't necessarily address the problem that they'd outlined. I know. And I guess having recently been engaged in a year-long study of traumas, uh, I think the behaviours of the emergency medicine interns in those is probably a very small influence on how they go overall. So it um, doesn't mean this isn't good work to do, but I think it might be optimistic. I'd be very surprised, to be honest, if it had a big impact on how their trauma resuscitations went, but uh, I don't think it's said in the paper either way. Um, I'm with you. I mean, I think my only reservation to this is that I would worry if it weren't positioned and introduced and pre-beefed carefully that there could be some negative training outcomes because there's no doubt that this format sort of reinforces this idea of a single leader who does all the thinking and the rest of the team is kind of mindless and doesn't volunteer things, uh, which I'm sure they're not intending to do, but I'm just saying sometimes we do things and then they have unintended consequences. And I think perhaps even this might be a little bit more provocative, but it reinforces the idea that all communication must be closed-loop communication, whereas I actually think in teams there's a much more nuanced tension between implicit and explicit um, communication because, of course, if we read back everything that gets said in a recess room, it becomes loud, noisy, and there's a problem with signal and noise. So to work out what the right balance is between the implicit and the explicit communication I think is actually a trickier thing than just saying everything has to be closed loop. So as I said, it's just a matter of thinking about the positioning and I think if you had a group and you pre-briefed them and said 
we're just going to make some points here about this particular thing uh, can be a great addition that would also be a little bit fun. Yeah, look, I agree. I would I would counterpoint, I guess, certainly in the resuscitations that I see as a clinician, particularly as it when I was a trainee, I, I would still argue a lot of the time resuscitations where the the level of ambiguity and complete lack of closed loops to the point of not necessarily even asking a, a specific person to do something is very heavily negatively affecting the resuscitation. So I, I think it's a good technique. I just, I agree it's got to be done um, as a, what's the word? Scalpel, not a, not a tomahawk kind of thing. I'll take both that analogy and your counterpoint. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben, what's coming up for August when we will be doing the wrap at Sim Health. Yes. So uh, as we did with Don't Forget the Bubbles last year, we're going to be having a simulcast live session at uh, Australasian Sim Congress uh, in September on the Gold Coast. So uh, anyone who's coming to that, I'm, I'd be super thrilled if you can contribute to this month's journal club. And uh, to top it off, we're going to be featuring a paper uh, by the good Jessica Stokes Parish et al. that was published in Advances in Simulation recently. Uh, and it's entitled Expert Opinions on the Authenticity of Moulage in Simulation, a Delphi Study. Uh, and for those of you who have been following Jess's work for the last uh, year or two, um, she has been on this very long journey of really nutting out a lot of the specifics about moulage in uh, simulation education, the pros, the cons, and what works and what doesn't work for what specific uh, need. So it's a great paper uh, by um, some of our colleagues, and I'm really looking forward to discussing it over the coming month. Should be good, although it must have hurt not to choose a debriefing paper, Ben, but uh, well, good on you. I am taking, I'm taking the criticism and incorporating into my practice pick. So it's very well appreciated. <laughs> All right. Well, Simulcast listeners, that's enough from us for one month. Uh, I'm Victoria Brazel. It's been a pleasure to be with Ben Simon again, and we'll look forward to uh, talking to you again. Yeah, have a good month, and please do come along to Journal Club. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.